This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I put brilliant people together with brilliant restaurants, sit at the other side of the table, get the menu, order loads of food, a bit of booze if it's appropriate, then we eat and then we talk. And I have to say, it is the perfect environment for this kind of chat. I've been the restaurant critic for The Observer for 20 years and the best conversations of my life have been over restaurant tables. This time, screenwriter extraordinaire and the king of Doctor Who... Russell T. Davis. I'm often kind of described as a gay writer. I think I'm a very political writer. And every oh. year I killed the Prime Minister on Doctor Who. Four years running. <laughs> <laughs> so for this edition of Out to Lunch, I've decided to bring uh, the great screenwriter Russell T. Davis to Cafe Murano in Covent Garden. Uh, it belongs to the chef Angela Hartnett, who has Italian heritage and cooks with big flavours. There's nothing mimsy about her cooking, nothing mimsy about Russell, so I thought it'd be a brilliant pairing. This is part of a small group. They're about to open another one in Bermondsey, but we are in Covent Garden. We have the whole of the top floor to ourselves. I've got to tell you, I'm looking forward to this lunch. This is nice. Is this just us? If anybody tries to break through the cordon, they mean, will be wrestled to the ground it's by mafia, isn't it? By you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like the mafia. I feel like I can be a made man after this. But so I'll just try and make this gentle <laughs> and easy. So when you're growing, you're growing up in Swansea. Yes. Um, lovely Swansea. With lovely Swansea, which you still have a house there. Don't I you? do. I've got a bought house down the Mumbles down there, which I love. And that's still home. Yes. Uh, well, no, that's a funny one. When I'm in Manchester, I think right. that's home. When I'm in Swansea, I think that's home. And it's genuinely evenly balanced. Do you know what helps? Identical cutlery and crockery in both houses. You settle in immediately. You make a cup of tea, it's in your favourite mug. In both houses. Did you do that oh, on, on purpose. purpose? Absolutely, I knew it. What a, what a first world problem to be discussing. I don't How do you cope with your two I houses? Know, it's so... <laughs> It's very important. I've always worried um, <laughs> about how I would cope, but I feel like I'm getting yes. tips right here. Uh, where did you go for the cutlery and crockery? Well, I, I love a Pantone mug. You know those Pantone mugs? Mm. The, 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 those ones. They, I've got collections of those. And, and did you remember. buy them in Manchester and then ship them to Swansea, or did you go to separate bra- I'm I sorry, think, I'm sorry. No, I think all the crockery is John Lewis, so, <laughs> so each one was bought in a John Lewis. Just uh, clean white plates. Okay. That's all. That must have made you a good customer. Did you get loyalty points? Um, I'm not really <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> so Who is learning from this? Who's finding this useful? You, that's me, fine, that's me. Fine. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah. Nice to meet you. So, Will will be serving us, and our, our question is well, there are three questions. First, mm-hmm. we can decide among ourselves whether we're doing the full Italian four courses oh. or three, whether you're drinking or not. 
I'll have a drink. I don't, I don't drink much, but it would be terrible to do this. Right, well, there's lots of stuff by the glass. Yeah, yeah. A drink. We have by the glass, and I can suggest you whatever you You recommend to me whatever's best. So. If there's an option of four courses, I can't imagine doing three. It's, that's, that would be just a terrible oh. thing. Okay. It, my family would never speak to me again. So, so what does that mean? What bits do we All right, so, so classically, if, and I go, classically if we did the four courses, you'd take one from the Sicetti uh, or antipasti at the top, or the, or the salads. Right. From there. Then the second one would be a pasta dish. All right. And then the third one would be meat or fish meat or over fish, the dish. And then, and then dessert. Dilly, dilly, right. So we're doing that? that? I think we are doing uh, that, yes. aren't we? Look, it's Friday. <laughs> it's um, Friday, exactly. And understand your late ma was a very good cook. Oh, amazing. Oh, amazing. Where'd you get that from? Research. I've done some research. <laughs> so your late ma was a very good cook. And you've said that on the day she died, the oven stopped working. It's very true. That happened. Yep. Now, as a dramatist, as a writer... <laughs> I'd never use that. You'd never put that in a, no. a script, would you? Because it was... A, and, and also, as, a, as kind of as an atheist as well, my sister kind of loved that fact, the oven's broken. Like something... Oh, like that had been a... A mark oh, from a on high. Sign from on high, and I'm like, well, who am I to say? But it's just a coincidence. But she was, you know, she was an extraordinary woman. She was, she was an only child and first of her family to go to university. So she was very independent, very self-made. So we grew up eating ossobuco and and coquille Saint Jacques. And you couldn't walk down the alleyway at the side of our house without it being a bucket with a brick where she was pressing a tongue. And she loved it. She loved cooking. cakes, extraordinary cakes. She'd have been on that bake-off. Now I have to point out on the menu. Yes, uh, there is an ossobuco. <gasps> Well, should we have it in my mother's memory? You can have, I think you Well, should. it's a taste of ashes. Is that a terrible yeah. thing? <laughs> and the oven will blow up. Yes, exactly. Um, oh, yes, risotto. Also, but, well, we have to have that. Well, I'll have that. You have that? Yes, yes, yes. That's uh, brilliant. And I'll have the, um, the rigatoni above. So then we're kind yes. of working backwards. What do you fancy from there? Um, this all, oh, it all looks nice. I know, I just want to... Ooh, salt cod fritter. That's a nice thing. All right. Let's have that. And the vitello donato. Mm. Then you'd like the risotto or sabuco? Yes, please. As a creamy? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And I'll have the rigatoni. Actually, no, I won't. Oh. I'll have the pumpkin tortelli with the sage butter, as I know that is one it's of Angela Hartnett's. It is, yeah. Kind of, that's if she right. signs anything, it's Do that. I get to try like a bit of that? You get to try everything. Brilliant. Lovely. Lovely. So, tortelli. And like my for family. the second um, I will have the lamb, thank you. And the lamb. Angela likes to cook it pink. Lovely, okay? lovely what she says. And I'll have the uh, chicken milanese. And the chicken milanese. Can we, Can we have a green salad? Yeah. Glass of red, glass of white. Glass of red. Would you like to try the Angela Hannett from uh, the red that she has? Does, she, does she press these yes. herself? Does she yeah. step on the grapes? Every morning, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, I can't say no to that, can I? Okay, From the feet of Hartnett. <laughs> so you're growing up in Swansea. Mm. Uh, your parents are both, well, it says classicists. Teachers, well, uh, they taught classics and French, mainly French in the secondary system, but um, they taught classics classes. Well, and then later on, my father became a careers teacher as well. My parents were fascinating. They kind of staggered out of the war. My dad had gone to war at 16. and had, had a terrible time. He, he, he had friends drowning in oil and used to talk about how he'd hose down boots of Jews off the coast of Malta to push them away, to push them back, to, to not take them in. And then you come home and, and you're a kid and you go back to live with your... As he was an only child as well, go back to live with your mum and dad. Extraordinary. And so the rugby club for my mum and dad became... The Swansea rugby club became the life and heart and soul of their lives all the way through to their deaths. We spent our lives in that place. All my sister's wedding receptions were in that Swansea rugby club. I, as a little kid, I'd be there. 
there every Saturday afternoon waiting for Doctor Who to come on the pub telly in the corner, <laughs> but playing with the slot machines while everyone talked about rugby and drank beer, the stink of beer. I can smell that now. Men and the women in their 60s, drunk in the kitchen, the men pissing in the garden, the women cackling over gin and tonic and clinging to each other. It was brilliant. My mum would cook, like, dinner parties for these people. And uh, I think they were drinking parties, really. And I can remember being in bed and listening to it, the laughter, the singing, proper Welsh singing, all of them singing. Wonderful. You also said you knew you were gay from sort of whenever. I suppose. Uh, yes, I did. I mean, you didn't really put a word on it then. I knew it was boys, all boys for me. I think then, I mean, we didn't have that vocabulary because that vocabulary didn't exist anywhere. So it's not like I said to myself, I am gay. I just knew enough to keep quiet about it, really. What, because of South, South Wales? Because, no, because the whole world. Well, not just South Wales, the whole world. This is like the early 70s, mid-70s. No-one was loud about it. As we hit the sixth form, the upper six and the lower six, some girls came out as lesbian. I think a lot of them were just being cool. But some of them are. <laughs> you think they were just, just attention Exactly. It was, like, it was a, like an offshoot of punk. Some of them still are. My friend Donna, who's still very, very happy. But I didn't really until I went to university. Just naturally. It's what you do. You're 18, you go away, you leave home. That's You've got your own room I, and you can do what you like. I think that's still the case. I think that's still, mm. you know, we fall into the mistake sometimes, saying, oh, everyone's out now and everyone's fluid and everyone's whatever. They're not. They're still, most, I think, still follow those quite normal paths. Once you leave home, then you become yourself. To say you have written gay characters and <laughs> gay, uh, gay dramas quite a lot would have be slightly understating Have it. you noticed? Have you, yeah, just a bit. <laughs> Has any part of that for you been an attempt to make it easier for the child that you were? Oh, I, that's, that's a very interesting question. I suppose... Or some wine is being poured into oh, the glass. Oh, thank you. Yes, that is where the wine starts. As I start to sob. <laughs> I'm just trying to solve I've never make actually, it better for the I've crying never, child inside I've me. Never should come out to my family. This is yeah. it. <laughs> this is my means of oh, coming shit. out. To, Do people not know? Via podcast. Fuck, imagine. I'm so sorry. Imagine coming out yeah. via podcast. Someone will. I don't think of it as like a, like a letter to the past in that sense. I think I'm trying. So it's interesting now. I've just written a series shooting now on Channel Four. It's not until next October. This is boys. It's boys, and that's about. 18-year-olds in 1980, when I started writing it and didn't actually realise it was literally my age. I was kind of halfway through it. I was thinking, what's on So you thought you were writing an AIDS drama? Yes. In the period when it's read It's in the past. Yes, it was all in the past. And I went, this is in the past, this is my life. And I don't need to wonder what what Blue Peter presenter these characters grew up with, because I know he was the same as me, which is quite an eye-opener, actually. And, yes, so this is the first time maybe I've consciously gone and said, look what life... It was interesting, because you set out, like, the three main characters... And at the beginning, I kind of thought, right, in the interest of fairness... I think we should sell this slightly, because you've got an oh. amazing cast for this. You've oh, got, God, yes. You've got Neil Patrick Harris, you've got yes, Stephen, Stephen Fry, you've got Fry. Keely Hawes. Yes, Ollie Alexander, as um, the lead, was the lead boy, was the lead singer in years and years, was a miracle. It's like we've caught a piece of lightning coming down from the sky. He's just absolutely extraordinary. Lydia West, who was, mm. was, uh, was in the series I just did called Years and Years. Lovely, lovely, lovely cast. And... Um, so three lead boys set in 1981, and I kind of thought, in the interest of fairness and balance and to get different characters on screen, I've got to have one of these boys who's out to his parents. And then I thought about it, 1981, boys out to their parents. No, I didn't know anyone. No one was. No one. So all three boys are closeted as it begins, because that's what the world was like. That Yes, there were extraordinary people in Soho or backstage the theatre. They were all around uh, my mum's house. <laughs> there were uh, flares on there, yeah. exactly. Or Roger Mumps. I bet. <laughs> yeah, they were, I bet that was a happy hearth, wasn't it? There, there were a, a happy homo hearth. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of. <laughs> I always say that you know, the Christmas, the big Christmas in my house, because my, my old mother Claire, she hated her mother in law, so she hid them in big Christmases, and it was <laughs> gay men, Jews, and actors. <laughs> often gay Jewish actors. What more do you need? Uh, She's doing a line out on lunch. She's 
boat. <laughs> yeah, it's oh, of course. Oh, that's uh, funny. Yeah, yeah. Gosh. Listeners don't know can fuck off. God's <laughs> sake. An icon. Marvellous woman. For any listeners who don't know who my, my mother was, she was Claire Rainer, she was an agony aunt, broadcaster, uh, pain in the ass to the government in many, many ways. Condom queen for a while. <laughs> Not many people can say that. Sure, we used to have this condom box. Condom queen. There was a box of... Uh, all the condom manufacturers <laughs> sent samples to our house. <laughs> and all our friends, they would sidle up to, to my... To Claire, and they'd go, <laughs> and she'd go, Yes, of course, darling, the condoms were in the box under my And we were responsible, I think, for probably staving off a lot of teenage pregnancies. Yeah, I think so, I think so. So you were obsessed by television as a kid. I was. But you weren't disappearing into it as a way to escape anything then? No, not particularly. Um, no, I had a very lovely, hearty, healthy relationship with television. My, my parents never never switched it off and they let me watch anything, which was brilliant. They didn't say, go out and play? No. no. Well, they did. They tried. and then, But they were teachers. They'd seen kids. I mean, whether they knew I was gay, they certainly knew I was some kind of a little intellectual as a kid. And they would, they take a is, is that a synonym? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it, well, yes. Russell's a bit of an intellectual. <laughs> and long may that be the case. Exactly. You have said um, you were born by C-section. I mean, really getting down yes, to the granular yes, detail. Yes, I was, yes. And there was Astonishing a whole birth, yes. morphine issue and psychotic. They gave my, my they had to sterilise my mother because I was the third caesarean. And in those days, that was what you did. Was that it? I think, Three uh, strikes. It, it was, that was it. And, 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 um, but they overdosed on morphine. So she went completely mad. She floated off into uh, into space, where these giant god-like heads appeared, saying, "Mrs. Davis, we, I, I imagine they called her Barbara. Actually, Barbara." <laughs> <laughs> like to, Why would they be so formal? God-like head knows you very well. Yeah, yeah. And they said, "We're sending you back to Earth." And, but we're sending you back to a parallel reality. This is like in 1963 where we didn't talk about parallel worlds and things like that. We're sending you back to a parallel world in which your, your firstborn daughter is dead. And the moment you speak to someone in that world, you're trapped there. So she then like That's wakes terrifying. up. I know. She wakes up in bed. The nurse says, how are you? And my mother attacked her and pulled down the curtains and went mad on the ward thinking she was trapped in a world in which her, my sister Janet was dead. No, 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 they said. Of course, they, of course, in those days, they wouldn't admit to giving her too much morphine. So they said, oh, I said to my dad, my dad turned up, having missed my birth for being at the rugby, quite right too. And also, he didn't go to the birth so much in those days, let's be honest. They, did, they said, I'm sorry, she's on the mental ward, as we called it then. It's a terrible phrase, mental ward, but that's what they said. She's gone mad, we think, because of the caesarean. That drove her mad and she couldn't cope, so she's in a complete state of collapse. And my father was like... Good news, Bernie, uh, uh, good news. By the way, yes. Your wife's completely insane. <laughs> Here he is. And he moved heaven and earth to get that decision overthrown. He was a clever man and when he investigated it and found a doctor who was someone he'd once taught to come and tell them they were wrong. Hard to do in 1963. Getting a doctor to tell another doctor they're wrong. And then, this is the best bit, she was released back onto the normal wards. No apologies, of course. We'd be millionaires now. But she was released back and put in the bed and they said, here, Mrs. Davis, here is your child handing over her firstborn son to her. And as they handed me over to her, they said, we think she should tell you he's got a club foot. I haven't got a club foot. <laughs> I just, for, for the tape, I just looked under the table. I don't know why. I felt the <laughs> In case I had that yeah. raised to, I have not got a club foot. I went to like little baby therapy for the first three years of my life as they manipulated my feet. It's no wonder I'm as graceful as a gazelle because they. And my mother was sitting there going, He's got a heel. This, he hasn't got a club foot. He's completely fine. 
but she just spent 48 hours being sectioned. Yeah, yeah so we're not so taking her word on No, we're like, yes, yes, love that. Three years of therapy. And eventually they turned around and said, we're completely wrong. He hasn't got a club foot. I like to think someone else with a club foot was being told they were fine for those three years. <laughs> oh, yeah, <that's> somebody else. <laughs> yes, yeah, someone else. Can't it's not a bad up. birth, is it? No. It's quite spectacular. That, that's and very science fiction y. That's what I love about it. It's like. Well, I was going to say, it's practically a superhero origin story. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> right. Oh, look, lovely food. Hello. I'm very ready. This is so, amazing. So, we you said we're going to add the salt codfrito. Oh, wow. There you go. That's a salt frit. And the vitello tomato. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Thank you. Immense. Thank Good. you. What have you ordered? What's that? I've ordered vitello tomato. Oh, I think the, the bit I was waiting for is coming. What are you waiting for? What's the tomato? I'm going to have to ask you, Will. Is the, is the tuna sauce underneath then? So, the chef de the tomato, and then the tuna mayonnaise yeah. is underneath. It's underneath, oh, okay. The tomato with the tuna mayonnaise. Perfect. Tuna mayonnaise. So, it's, it's meant wow. to be tuna and anchovy mixed under, and the tomato is uh, finely sliced veal. It's wow. going to be sliced very fine. You win. Good choice. Oh, no, no, no. We're both, no, both going to yes, take okay. some of each. Let's do that. Marvellous. Um, but, Doctor Who, mm-hmm. you are a child of John Pertwee. Mm. Yes. I can remember William Hartnell episode. I can remember William Hartnell regenerating in the TARDIS, and I was three then, or maybe even less than three, but I remember it happening. And that's so Patrick Trout, and I, remember, I am literally soaked in the whole thing. This is beautiful food. Mm-mm. I'm enjoying this. You should uh, mm. throw a knife and fork into that. So you, there's sauce underneath. So usually it comes with, the, with a kind of mm. Jackson Pollock across the top ah. of it. And this is slightly different. Were you early on? Oh, God. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? You do win. That's stunning. Were you early on thinking, what I want to do is write that, or was that... I did. I I think as a kid, I never thought you could write that. I didn't think writing was an option. But one of the brilliant things about Doctor Who is that, and all Doctor Who fans say this, it's so well documented as a production. When you're ten years old, you're reading books about how the scripts are delivered, what happened that day when it fell behind its studio, how the monsters are built. It's like an open text. There's no mystery. There's no... Suspense about how on earth did they create that spaceship? It's all there. So actually, it educates you in television production what hugely. I find, what I find fascinating in the last series, we interviewed Mark, okay, mm. and it almost sounds it. like the two of you <laughs> were sitting at opposite ends of mm. the United Kingdom. Mm. You in Swansea, he in Durham. Very true. I'm living the same internal life. Stephen Moffat as well. well. Yes, the same thing. The same reactions to it. The same. Love of it, the same secrecy over it. As you got older, then became more of a secret because it was a bit more embarrassing at 15, 16 to be watching Doctor Who. So we just took it away to yourself and kept it in your secret heart, which makes it even burn even fiercer. So, um, so, yeah. so what you, you, you came out at around 15, 16, but you kept absolutely silent the on the whole coming out. Thing. No, that's true. I can remember in my 20s, I can remember copping off for someone once. And um, that must have been. Like, I've got to tell you. <laughs> in my late twenties, exactly. And someone say, "Oh, it's a Doctor Who book on your shelf." And I was like, "Oh no!" Like no, my sister it. bought me that, and she's like mad, and uh, I don't know what that's doing there from a junk shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. That's how you'd react to it. You basically denied your own denial. My whole life, your own nature, fighting denial. <laughs> that's awful. It's working. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> I not, can't complain. <laughs> When did you start writing? When I was How did doing, that happen? I, um, yes, a youth theatre got me writing. I did always want to write. It's it's hard to it's hard to kind of quantify because I always wanted to do it and I never thought I could. So I can't I can't I can't 
tell you stories about me burning with desire. And yet I was. I was sitting there writing, starting to write my own. When I was 21, I got an electric typewriter and started to write my own scripts. And then it happened completely by accident. I was working. I got a job on a television show called Why Don't You? Which I, Why don't you switch off your television, go do something more interesting instead? Da, 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 da. That was the music. And I got just like a day job on it, working with the kids. And I walked into a television studio for the first time in my life, just for like one day, 50 quid. And I'm not kidding. I walked in the studio, I'm like, this is it, this is my life. This is me in the right place. When you were first writing, were you any good? Oh, um, uh, to be honest, yes, I was good straight away. <laughs> Can I just be honest? Round of applause. I've had a little drink. Um, obviously, a million things to learn, but yes, I mean, I literally got work immediately. The first, I'm sorry, but the first thing I wrote, there was a bidding war between the BBC and Granada. Oh, over this children's it? thing with Jacqueline Pierce in called Dark Season. Because I was an idiot. I didn't even have an agent, so I just sent it to the BBC, sent it to Granada, onto slush piles. And both of them, went, yes, we'll have this. On spec, it's, it's, went it's, for it's it. Just, yeah, yeah, it wasn't quite on spec. I knew some people that I knew Tony would have Granada to hand it to and say, there's that. But nonetheless, yes, yes, yes. And um, that's not bad, is it? That's terrible. People, no, I mean, I'm thinking of people listening to this. Hate. You are extremely established now. Yes. You get stuff made. You produce an awful lot of television. Yeah. I wonder whether there's ever... a a likelihood that you don't get the kind of editorial oversight that perhaps other people do, because you're Russell, and it will always yes. be a banker, and it will always go on screen, it will always be fine. Yes, 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 that's true, I, and I worry about that myself. I work always, as often as I can, with Nicola Schindler. Uh, who is producer of reproduction. She made Queer as Folk and Me, Bob and Rose, and... and Cucumber and years and years. I mean, I've done. We're now on our tenth show together, and she would. I can imagine her listening to this, laughing out loud. I thought of her not giving a note to me. Um, but so she does give. Oh notes. goodness me! Yes, yes, yes. Oh yes. If that doesn't work, that doesn't work. And um, oh, she'll phone up straight away. I mean, I hand in a script, and then you sit there in a state of terror. Still, absolutely. Do you? Oh, of course. Oh, I'm that, so reassured oh, by you shitting it by the phone. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely. But, I know. <laughs> Just, you know, the, the more established someone becomes, oh, the more no. you think it's a piece of piss. Well, actually, you take notes from anywhere. I'm, I'm a great believer in, like, listen to that listen to that PA who's just walking out the room going, oh, I like that bit. You know, even the bits people like, listen to that, because that means if someone says, oh, I like that scene, I'll defend it to death. You know, you five months later, the one location and it's raining and they can't do that scene and I'm thinking that's the scene that that woman liked in the office and we're not losing that scene because someone liked it and and also it's funny I did that thing A Very English Scandal um, with uh, Hugh Grant which is lovely Hugh Grant playing Jeremy Thorpe Thorpe, um, and and Ben Whishaw they see the woman from Amazon had a note on that and you feel your hackles rising thinking come on this commercial dreadful note and there was this commercial dreadful note saying it's great the last episode's great there isn't a moment when Ben Wishaw's going to win a BAFTA. And you think, how, no, but you think, how cynical is that? How mercenary is that? How terrible is that? How absolutely right that is. <laughs> and I, I love this story because I, I did went, go and rewrite it. I rewrote it specifically with big speeches for him. And lo and behold, he's won every single prize <laughs> in the world. He won a BAFTA. He won an Emmy. He won so an she RTS. was right. She was right. She was, and I, so take notes from anywhere. So I read the book. Uh, amazing, which it? is an amazing book. Gosh. And it's what's it, uh, extraordinary. If you haven't read... The, uh, John Preston. Yeah, yeah it's John yeah, yeah, Preston's yeah. book. Um, a very English He's scandal. a great man. You must know him. I, I, I think oh, we've met once. Right. Um, but we were allied trades. He was on <laughs> Telegraph for a very of long course. time. He's like that book. He's fizzing yeah. and brilliant and gossipy and lovely. So for anybody who weirdly didn't see it go out or hasn't read the book, A Very English Scandal it involves the leader of the Liberal Party, um, 
Jeremy Thorpe, who was wound up in a, I suppose, a plot. Technically found not guilty. Technically found not guilty. <laughs> a plot to, uh, to murder his one-time lover, Norman Scott, up on Exmoor. And all poor old Norman Scott's dog was the one that got the bullet. Shoot the dog. Can you see how I love that story? It is extraordinary. <laughs> um, but it was at the time, if you lived through that period, which both Russell and I did, it was, it was headline news and went on and on and on. Oh, I was 16 in 1979, so there were these extraordinary homosexuals being discussed on the news and, and Norman Scott being described as a male model. Oh, that's the most derogatory term. It, what was clever about it was it was written as a novel about a real event. Yes, yes, yes. But it was also a very dispassionate third-person narrator. Mm. Yes. You took a position yeah. in, in, in that script. So there was, there was no That's particular judgment, I think, in the, in the book's text about how hard it was to be Jeremy Thorpe and to yes. be gay. That's very true, yes. But yes, you yes. Gave, gave them some speeches. There's a particular point where Jeremy Thorpe defends Norman Scott. Yes. On yes. the stairs the in best. the Commons. There's the, 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 some terrible men around, and the, 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 the position you're in as a gay man having to go out with, um, you know, men down the docks having to pick people up in the streets. And it was, it was a tricky piece of work, that, because, as you know, every word has run past BBC compliance, and I had to prove to BBC compliance that Jeremy Thorpe would have picked up rough bits of trade off the street. And I simply defended it by saying, that's, that's what every gay man, every gay man I know has done that now, in 2019, so you cannot tell me. In 1973 or exactly. whatever. You cannot. We've all had those bad nights. Of course they existed then. And I won. I'd be, I'd be the lawyers with that. But yes, I've, I felt, yes, that story had been told a lot of times, but actually it had never been told by a gay man. That's what I thought was really, really important. And so, and, and I can't Did you feel like a custodian of it? I, I felt great responsibility, yes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. I had an experience once with somebody who wanted to, um, like, role play, uh -huh. like, um, like with relative stuff. No. Yes. No. That's a and hard I couldn't. Pass. And I said, I said, um, they no. wanted. They first said, da like, dad, daddy, oh, and, and, and I said, um, well, that's not so bad. But um, so I suggested maybe, like, I said maybe the most I could do is uncle. <laughs> Okay, so that was just a snippet of an episode with actor and podcaster Justin Long. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and I'm telling you, you need to listen to the full episode on my podcast, Dinner's on Me. Over a meal at Pine and Crane in downtown LA, we get into his love story with Kate Bosworth, his career, and so much more. To listen, just search Dinner's on Me wherever you listen to podcasts. There's more food. Oh, my yeah, God. Beautiful risotto <gasps> also. Oh, gosh. And then we have the tortel, pumpkin tortelli for you. This is amazing. Okay. Enjoy this. your creamy, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. It's not traditional, but would you like some parmesan with the... No, I, no, okay? I think I'll... It's not traditional or it is traditional. No, no, nope, lovely. I'll do it as is. Thank you. Would you like some? A little bit. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. I have to say, that is... Uh, so, anybody who doesn't know, Otsobuko is veal shin... It's cooked long and slow, but it's got to be on a saffron risotto. And this is the colour of daffodils. It's and a felt pen. 
isn't it? It's, it's like someone's coloured it in. Pen. It's gorgeous. <gasps> Look at that part of that. That's beautiful. Thank you. Mm. Thank you very much. All right. Enjoy it. I'm realising my mother didn't do the saffron so much. And my whole childhood is being rewritten slightly. Well, now, the Ossobuco, I, suppose, <laughs> I mean, the full name is Ossobuco with risotto milanese. Oh, and right. It, so the risotto milanese is the saffron. Oh, bit. right. So she's... Um, so so the Ossobuco is the shin. So right. she, she absolutely did the right thing. all right, Barbara. You're okay. Yeah, Barbara, you're fine. The uh, like heads are smiling at you. So I've got the pumpkin mm-hmm. ravioli. Oh, gosh, that's nice. It's got a pumpkin puree inside, mm. sage over the mm. top. And even without asking, I'm going in for your uh, results. How did you get that much taste into pumpkin? That's right, wow. I know, it's good, isn't it? Wow. I spent last night roasting a cauliflower with my sister. We said, let's roast a cauliflower, because we've never done that. You know how to spend an evening. <laughs> it was enormous fun. We were out and we were videoing it for the rest of the family. We loved it. She got these spices, that had tahini and mirin and... And she's inherited that off my mother. It was, it was a great success. Mm. It was delicious. Mm. As far as many people were concerned, your breakthrough was Queer as Folk. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The biggest decision with Queer as Folk was to give it no genre. It's just a story about people knocking about in Manchester. It's like the, the temptation when you're pitching a story, when you're saying, here's my drama, is to... It'd be much easier if scene one had been like the discovery of a dead rent boy in the canal... His mother comes to Canal Street to find out about his life, who murdered him, going through all the... So Imagine now it's a crime procedural. That's a good drama, though, isn't yeah. it? Imagine Judy Dench turns up and go visit all the drag club and you're trying to find out... You're kind of prime suspect, trying to yep. find out who pushed her son into the canal. Um, as you're just relying on those structures and strictures. Um, so it took a long while to think, just, just, just... Canal Street, which is the gay street in Manchester, is a drama in and of itself. Which, that took a while, yeah, but... This is a very detailed question. Have you ever had or stolen one of the Canal Street street signs and put <laughs> no, it on your wall? I'm tall enough. <laughs> I know I never have the signs that get reduced to anal treat. <laughs> Thank you for dropping it in because it saved me doing so. Do enjoy your food. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just sitting there waiting to be strapped uh, down from <laughs> Canal Street. But to... that's the great thing about the old Canal Street. It's like, I was the lucky one who got to write it. Someone else would have come along and done that drama. But if your father lost his sight... Oh, no. This... Don't make me tell this story. Oh, go on. No, it's a marvellous story. It is a marvellous story. <laughs> so, it, it, obviously, your parents were absolutely cool with not just accepting but supportive of you being gay. Well, Queer Folk was a bit raw for them, it's got to be said. It's like I had to take that home the Christmas before it was shown and play it to my mum on something like Christmas night or something once everyone had gone to bed, and she thought it was kind of pornographic. She said, that's soft porn. I was mortified by the word soft. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Is it true that because your dad had lost his sight, your mum did a bit of audio description? Yes, she used the... to sit there. He, he had glaucoma and had gone blind, because you did in those days. Yeah. It's fixable now, but... um. And so she'd sit watching the telly saying, he walks into the room, he picks up a gun, the police have arrived, he's running down the street, like that. And in fact, hilariously, she'd do it when he'd gone to bed. She just kept going. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be sitting there with her saying, watching the Poseidon Adventure, saying, the waves hit the ship, the Christmas tree's upside down. She'd say, I can see, Mum, I can see. You'd be like, (laughs) she just did it automatically. So... And she also had to do it for Jay, the more explicit scenes. You know never, what I'm asking. You ever asked what went on in the house that night of the rimming scene? <laughs> Enjoy your food. Of your chocolate cake. Of his queer as folk. It's, it's like, what did happen that night? I wonder. I do not. I never asked. They're both dead now. It's gone to the grave with them. I suspect he went to bed early that night. Do you I think? think? I think she would have given him the nod. Well, that's enough of that, now. That's enough. I th- you don't want it. This isn't for you, Viv, she would have said. <laughs> <laughs> what are things you have to cope with? 
That's a drama. You famously said that you met your late husband by actively deciding to go out. Yeah, I and did. And <laughs> sleep with 100 men, mm-hmm. and one of them would, mm-hmm. would do. And he was number 35. It's going to be my self-help book. How can I find a husband? Have them. <laughs> and one of them you'll wake up with the next That's morning. The title of the book. Have uh, them. Have them. Oh, and I met some lovely boys along the way. And um, I well, did was I... that around Canal Street? Was that? Uh, oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh god, yes, all in Manchester. Well, I suppose like trips to London and things like that. But I literally thought I had to go out. It was quite compulsive. I go out four or five times a week. I thought I'm really going to do this. I'm really, really going to find the right man. Never dreaming that actually you would. I would. And then number thirty-five. Lo, number thirty-five. Lo and behold, he looked at me across Cruise One Hundred and One on April the twelfth, nineteen ninety-eight. You've actually said if you had a TARDIS, that is the day you go. I back go to. back and watch the two of us having just to see each other. Literally, and the, it's a funny thing, life, isn't it? Because it's like he'd been living in Manchester for ten years. Going to Canal Street, there's not that many clubs, there's not that many pubs. It's actually quite a small street. We've never seen each other. Never even... And I would have... He was so handsome, I would have noticed him. I need to get my dates right, but that <laughs> predates queer. Predates queer as well, yes. Yeah. I just started writing it. I was writing it then. Weird, isn't it? Yes, it's like I was just summing up that life that I was watching when it came to an end, in a way, because, 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 because I found him. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you were in watching telly and get a takeaway. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank God. Thank the Lord. It was also the period when you were burning the candles. Um, mm. You went you went for a almost attention-seeking overdose, didn't you? I just, who hasn't when you're young <laughs> and when you're daft? It's like, it's like, it was, I remember it was like, the three days after Princess Diana died, and I vividly remember thinking, I won't even make a fucking headline. <laughs> She's over all the front pages. Do writer know, dies in Manchester. Nothing. <laughs> I actually, I, I think. Do you know who also died on the same day as Diana? No. Who? Mother Teresa. Yes, she did, didn't she? <laughs> yes, the papers were certainly full. You see, I actually, I think it proves that that overdose wasn't as bad as I thought it was no. because I was thinking those things. Oh, right. So you, you still remember that that, mm. that glorious fact? And it was kind of a shock to the system. Stop doing it. Stop going out. Stop drinking. Stop doing it. And that. That's when. Yes, that then slapped me on the path to finding a boyfriend. Thinking you need to grow up a bit. Grow up and settle down. That was the order. Mm, yeah. Have have the lost night. Yeah. Sort your life out. The notes you give yourself. The notes you give yourself. That's the constant theme of our, of our lunch. Um, have a word with yourself. Andrew died just over a year ago. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A year and a month. Yeah, yeah, now. Yes. Bless you. Yeah, had, brain cancer. Yeah, yeah. Were you looking for someone to spend your life with? Oh, God, him? yes. That was him. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, we were together for 20 years. In the end, that, that, that is a lifetime, really. Mm. Yes, and right, yes, his lifetime. and yeah. even even we, we kind of thought he'd overcome that cancer. He was diagnosed in 2011, and it's a terrible cancer. It was a grade four brain cancer. They said you've got 18 months to live, but he survived eight years after that. So we, as ever, we just kind of relaxed slightly into thinking, oh, this is going to work, and then bang, came back in four weeks, took him away. They always said it would come back, I have to say. They always said They'd that. warned you that that might happen. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's truly a killer. It's like, I don't even like to name it in case someone's listening who's just been diagnosed with it. Right. It's, it's really horrible, yeah. But you took, what, two or three years out eventually? Yeah, I've always been a great saver. I've always saved for a rainy day, and then the rain came along, and so I had enough money. I was lucky. You sit in those council hospitals, believe you me, and the most busy department is the, like the social services offices where the, the, the Christie in Manchester will help you sort out your benefits and how to live life, how to pay the electricity bill, because you've got people sitting there with kids clinging to their legs who've just been told... You're not going to work for like six months if, if, if you can get past that. So mm. the luck of us having enough money to be ill was wonderful and made things. But as you say, is it, was it luck? Because you, you, you've always said you were a saver. Somebody had told you that 
being a writer would be an impoverished lifestyle. Yes, yes, yes. Even though it goes back before that, though, it's like I was a... When I was about 11, I inherited, I inherited a thousand quid off my Auntie Dulcie. And I think mm. I probably still got that sitting there. Good I always saved. Dulcie. Good old Auntie Dulcie. She was wonderful. Um, yeah, always saved. Don't know why. I think, well, my mum was a good saver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it from them, really. They were very prudent. And thank goodness, because... It was. I could have given up work for five, six, seven years. I could have stayed that way because, um, and that's was lovely because we spent all day, every day together. He was kind of he was he was slightly impaired, physically impaired by the mm. by, by the operation. He had seven craniotomies in. That's cruel. Well, that's seven. That's seven. Very hard work going into your head. That's not nice. And a million uh, side effects. <clears throat> he had. Um, drug-induced uh, diabetes, steroid-induced diabetes, trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, he had a shunt put in his head because he had hydrocephalus, a million, million side effects. And so he was impaired by that. But still himself, still fine in himself. People, perhaps on the outside of what you do for a living, might wonder whether all of that life is useful for a writer. But I suspect you... Mm, I know what you mean, yes. I suspect you're suspicious of that. Um, I don't know. I think um, I will... No, and there's, there's... In The Boys, uh, this, 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 this drama I'm making now, Boys, there are scenes, obviously, in which people die, and I'm already dipping into the things I went through. There's some physical elements and stuff like that that, that Andrew went through in his final days. You quite ruthlessly use that stuff it's good to use that stuff I've seen it I've experienced it he experienced it use it and um, so if all so, else went wrong you could you could do a whole season of Casualty yes <laughs> I could do, yeah, I'd be great on that because okay. literally he, eight years and he had two medical appointments a week he had so many things wrong with him oh the hospitals I've sat in and are the marvels of the NHS do I even sit here and need to spell that out with you but no no absolutely not. not you're obviously political I mean, did that experience make you more did it politicise you more it only confirmed what I always thought, that was my view on the NHS anyway. Um, it is, it's true. It's, like, it's funny because I'm a gay, I'm often kind of described as a gay writer. I think I'm a very political writer. And every oh. year I killed the Prime Minister on Doctor Who. Four years running. It is. <laughs> <laughs> every And then in Torchwood, one of them was an evil alien conspirator. Every single year. Um, that first year of Doctor Who, we aimed a missile at Downing Street. We blew up Downing Street. And the black door blew off and went flying. You can't get much subtler than that. Tony Blair was dead in a cupboard. Do you remember? The Selena oh, yes, murdered yeah, him and really put his body in a cupboard. That went out like 7 o'clock on BBC One. <laughs> what nonsense. Was there, was there some kind of, again, editorial <laughs> compliance? They so loved it. They, they? They, they Actually, the grins on the BBC, uh, Lorraine Hegarty was the controller of BBC One, loved that. Absolutely. They're not daft. They like a bit of sauce and they like a bit of controversy. Actually, there was no controversy over that at all because it was just seen as larking about with big green monsters, but it was blowing up the whole government. All of them. Let me ask you about Doctor Who. How did that gig come your way? It came my way because of nagging, because I'd all for, for when Queerest Folk took off, I was in a very lucky position where people listened to me and the doors were open. So any meeting with the BBC, I would say, please can I make Doctor Who? Please will you bring it back? I'd, well, literally, you'd finish any, any drama meeting. Anything, so. yes, yes, yes. And I used to, they'd, they'd offer me, they'd say, would you like to do a Tale of Two Cities? And I go, no, I want to do Doctor Who. Bring that back. And <laughs> it was, I was cheeky. I was really cheeky. But then actually, it was Nicholas Schindler. Had a word with Jane Tranter, who was the Jane Tranter was called the controller of fiction of the BBC. What a marvelous Doctor Who mm. title that is! A controller of fiction. fiction. I control the entirety of fiction. fiction. Marvelous. And um, but and but also anyone. Jane Tranter is the real hero behind the story because she loved Doctor Who. She had worked on Doctor Who as a floor manager. Had she? Yes, yes, yes. She'd oh. been worked to like in the John Nathan Turner days. She'd been she'd been at North Acton marking out the TARDIS, and and her kids. She had two kids who to this day love science fiction. So she had already decided to bring it back. 
in some shape or you form. You were banging at a, a very and, open and door. Someone, but Nicola pointed out to me, Russell's dying to do it, and she says there's, there's a there's a, a BAFTA guru speech where she talks about this in, 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 in an interview where she says the two ideas, my name and that show, went together in her head, and she went, "Oh, that's it. That is it." So lucky, enormously lucky but also a lot of graft in putting myself forward. But there is a great difference between writing Queer as Folk, which is a... How many part was it? Uh, only eight, and eight. then a little two-part yeah. uh, rounding-up thing. And then building an enormous liner. Yes. Which yes, is that's Doctor true. Who, and also required um, pretty much moving yourself to Cardiff. To Cardiff, yeah. Part of the deal was... Um, to bring regional drama alive, to make more programmes. You pretty much did that single-handedly. Yes, well, the th- there were people with me. I mean, of there, course there, there were people <laughs> with you, but the, the, the launching Doctor Who down in Cardiff has yes. turned Cardiff into the centre of... <laughs> so, uh, uh, I know Toby Jones a little, and he described... Oh, yes, yes, the, yes. We came to dinner just, uh, the night that his episode went out, oh, brilliant, and brilliant. he talked about the fact <laughs> of all these incredible names from British drama suddenly find themselves in Cardiff. Yes, <laughs> in the hotels there. In the hotels You, you walk into any hotel bar and you'll bump into Alex Kingston or someone. Yeah, yeah, it's mad. It's, very, it's still the case now. They made his art materials there. All so the James McAvoy, the James McAvoy hanging out down there and, and renting flats. It's a, we used to. We did, there's a block of flats uh, on the bay that we used to call Doctor Who Towers, where I lived, where John Barrowman lived. The revolving door at John Barrowman's flat. And uh, David Tennant Oh, please, lived. I want that to be true. <laughs> of course not. And uh, Liz Sladen lived. And they used to go, we would call it Doctor Who Towers, tour buses, tour boats would go around the bay and they'd pull up, they'd, they'd detour, saying, here we have Doctor Who Towers. They have little microphones going. And in here, Because I was the only one... And Russell I was the only one ever in in the day. Everyone else was out filming, so I used to go up my balcony and wave <laughs> to the boatloads of primary school kids going past. <laughs> It was that mad. They were they were very mad Doctor Who days. I did have your little pop pop and hello like that. They'd all wave. How mad? Clothes, I'd like to say. The response <laughs> from the uh, I'm delighted. Um, the option was there. You know, Ian McKellen does that from the balcony of his uh, limehouse. Oh, amazing! He stands on the balcony and waves as oh, the amazing. Yeah. So he should. So he should. Thank you. From the start, it was pretty much hailed as a great thing. Yes, 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 amazingly. I don't want to intrude on private grief, <laughs> but uh, your first doctor has had a pop this in the past month. Oh, right, yes, yes, yes. Oh, bless Chris, he's a genius. It's like, when you work with geniuses, when you work with actors, it's the rough and the smooth, and I will listen to anything he's got to say, genuinely, and he's spoken beautifully and movingly mm. about his mental health and his anorexia that he had at the time like that. I don't even like talking about it simply because I don't think it's professional to put words into his mouth. I mean, this is, no, this is, no, this is these things he said, so I'll happily talk about those. So, and we knew that at the time. I talked to him about that. He came to my house and we talked about that, which is a hell of a condition to be in. It's, it's amazing that... Um, you know, he can live in the world and, 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 and be wonderful as he is. So, you know, we just be grateful for what you've got and what a wonderful doctor he is, what a brilliant year that was. Mm. And um, I'm sad that he doesn't remember it more happily, but I understand why, and that's fine. Yeah, that's fair completely enough. fine. You must have been, at first, thinking about Doctor Who episodes you'd wanted to do for a very long time. Yes, that is true. Yes, some of them I wrote that had been in my head for a good 20 years or so. Some of them were brand new. Actually, the first episode was kind of brand new. I remember the moment I was, si- I was sitting on the sofa... Uh, and it's, it's a glorious moment. I'm pretty sure it's the first series. You'll tell me if I'm not. I'm, I'm yeah, here. I'll know. Yes. Uh, when the Daleks come and find themselves at the bottom of some stairs. Yes. And the Doctor is standing and laughing. <laughs> and they go, well, that's it, we're fine. That's it, ha. Uh, and then the Dalek levitates. The Dalek says, elevate. <laughs> yes. Instead of exterminate, uh, yeah. it's elevate. It goes up. How we laughed. 
Yes. It's Who's a whole that, episode. Uh, that was written by a lovely man called Robert Shearman, but it was that. It's what we were always going to do with the Daleks was make them fly. Because, of course, also what happened to Doctor Who was that technology, it, it, it waited until the technology came along because it was always a big, lavish show. In 1964, they did a Dalek invasion of Earth in the corner of a little what, road studio. It's, it, it had always had ambitions beyond its realm. I've got a jigsaw at home a jigsaw that I bought on eBay, a genuine 1963 jigsaw, which shows, like, William Hartnell running away from these Daleks, which are being strafed by the RAF. <laughs> the RAF is firing <laughs> missiles at them, and the field is exploding, and London is burning in the background. It was always that big in our minds. It That's was the thing. People don't like always that. understand that, as well as the episodes that went out, there's a massive world of Doctor Who yes. involving novels yes. and magazines yes. and images. That's what I loved as well. I loved, I, I mean, I was greedy for it. I loved the whole size of it. I loved helping work with Doctor Who magazine. I've got every single issue of Doctor Who magazine in my office all stacked up neatly. I suspect nowadays you don't make <laughs> apologies for any Doctor Who no. stuff. No, now. No apologising to the one-night stands now, if only. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. I remember the very beginning saying, I'd like a copy of every single toy, just so they... In my dotage, I'll, I'll have this huge drift then, piled exactly, up in the corner of your After office. a year, I was I almost had to move flats. I had to give up my balcony and stop waving to the crowds <laughs> because of the cupboard full of toys, which is still there, actually. I've hardly ever touched it. Still there gathering dust, but I literally had to say no more and, and just chose the nice ones. Or food. So this is the Lambra with oh, that's aubergine, golden raisin, oh. and pine nuts. And wow. And chicken Fantastic. Oh, that's oh. lovely. Yours is very classic. Isn't it? There's a lot of foliage. Yes, There's it's under there somewhere. Rocket Parmesan. They're hiding things today, like they did with your tuna mayonnaise. Well, they did. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's beautiful thing. So, why in the end did you leave? Oh, How many um, years did you do before mm. you... I did um, four series and a year of specials. Because we'd started work like eight, it was kind of like six, seven years by the time I'd been there. I've never spent so long on something, never. It's, and I had other things to write. I, I loved it. It was a success. I'm immensely proud of leaving it. My last standard episode was the same, had the same ratings as our first episode. Right. Over four years, that doesn't happen. No. All ratings. Particularly in current we started television with, world where everything's. Exactly. We started with 10.5 million and we left with 10.5 million. I was so proud of that. Oh my God, I was proud of that. And now a word from our sponsor, which in this case is me. I've got a new book out. It's called My Last Supper, One Meal, A Lifetime in the Making, in which I attempt to answer the one question I've been asked most often, what would my last meal on earth be? I go out in search of the ingredients. It does include pig. And I tell the stories behind them. It's available now in hardback, ebook, and audio formats. And I'm also on tour with a live show based on the book. For tickets and info, visit jrayner.co.uk. And now back to Out to Lunch. But what was the plan when you, when you went out to LA? Mm. And did you have a house in the canyons? Did you... Venice Beach. Venice Beach. Washed up. I love living by the seaside. That's why I got a house in Swansea now. It's um, the rich and the poor wash up by the edge of the world. So you get, it's, an, it's always an extraordinary world by the sea, right on the coast. The dropouts and the millionaires, everyone living together. I love it. And because um, I, mean, I wouldn't like to live in LA particularly, I, that is famously kind of soulless. But living there was extraordinary and brilliant. And um, so I was ambitious. I thought, and I'd, I'd been show running. And I thought I can run a team. So I set out there to do that. We we got an American version of Torchwood. Um, Commissioned and what eventually became a Channel Four series called Cucumber, that was ready to roll as an American show. That was that was that was kind of sitting with Showtime and 
had I stayed there, that, that would have been made. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Andrew fell ill, and, yes. you, and you basically came home. Mm. There was, it, it strikes me there was no hesitation in your mind no. about doing that. Absolutely not. We were home anyway for the summer. We had about two weeks at home. He'd been getting lots of headaches. But two friends of ours, Richard and Donna, saved his life, actually. They said, it just sounded a bit odd. They said, you've got so many headaches. Why don't you go for a scan? Pay for a scan. Pay for a private scan, just in case. Oh, all right, then he said. And uh, he was funny, because he'd, he'd got so many headaches. He, he did used to say, they go, what have I got a brain tumour? And you shut up. Mm. Of course you haven't like that. And um, I was flying back to L.A., he had this scan on a Monday. On a Tuesday morning, he drove me to the station because I was going back to L.A. early. I had work to do, so I was going a week ahead of him. As he dropped me off the station, his phone rang, and it was the scan people saying, could you come in and see us right now? And we kind of went, that's a bit funny, that's a bit odd. But then we thought, no, it's not odd, because in a week's time you're going back to L.A., maybe they're just rushing things. So I got on the train to London. He went off to his meeting at 1 o'clock. I got to Heathrow, and I didn't check in. I just kind of thought, I'll just wait and see what they say at that meeting. One o'clock, my flight was at three o'clock or something. You had time. Sunny day. I'm standing on this paving stones outside Heathrow Terminal, whatever, and there were all these school kids there. They were off on a school trip, and it was kind of noisy and buzzy, and that too hot, that bright sunlight, it's a bit too hot on your skin. And my thing is, and there was nowhere to hide, really, in the shade. And I just remember thinking, I'll just wait, I'll just wait. And he'll call, it'll be fine. And then he phoned up, and he'd literally come out from the doctor and saying, it's a brain tumour, and I'm going back in. And that was it. I never went back to America. I literally picked you up my bag. You didn't go on that flight. You picked nope. up your bag and went home. Oh, picked up my bag and went home. That long two-hour journey back to Manchester. I mean, I, just, I was always sad that I wasn't there for him with that meeting. And um, it was amazing. You were there for everything else. Well, I was there for everything else. It's amazing because by the time I got home, I was going, what have you got? What have you got? What is it? And, of course, it all got out of his head. He said, I don't know. They just said it was, I think they said it was cancer. I don't know what sort of cancer. They said, we've got a meeting in three days' time, so an appointment, so we'll find out then. I was like, oh, all right. And then that night, he was, he was sitting watching telly, and he got a piece of paper out of his, out of his bag or his coat or something. He went, oh, here we are. He went, the nurse wrote it down. Oh, that, that's what it is. And so he handed me this piece of paper with the diagnosis written down. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I was sitting next to him. Googling. Watching the telly. I pick up my phone and Google. He didn't Google, because one of the strange benefits of that tumour was that it kind of stopped him reading. He didn't read much, and, and so... Because we would all Google our symptoms, otherwise he never did. So I, like, pick up my phone, sit next to him, some quiz on television, cha-cha-cha, and there in black and white, it's literally entry number one on Google says, like, The Terminator. And I was like, oh, mm. right. And I said, Dad, just come and upstairs, send some emails. Nipped upstairs, read all about it, and wow, he's going <clears> to die. This is absolutely... In fact, he's going to die. He then did an extraordinary thing. When he went for his, um, this is like advice on living with cancer, which isn't at all. Everyone's different. I don't mean to do that at all. You know, no, it's, it's, but, it's good. But when, it, when then he had a biopsy, then they confirmed it. And again, he wasn't looking up all the symptoms online, which we would do. And um, some great instinct stopped him doing it. And um, then they turn around to him and say, he's a brilliant doctor, Dr. McBain, who was just, just the NHS at its finest, wonderful woman. She said, would you like a prognosis? And completely out of the blue, he went, no. No, thanks. We hadn't discussed this at all. I was like, really? You don't want to promise? No, he said, no. And I think that's one of the things that helped him live for so long, is that he never knew, actually, he did towards the end, but he never, for years, he didn't know how bad it was. And did that, you know? I knew, yes. I had a little word. Oh, I'd looked it up a million times. I was like an expert in it by that stage. And, um, and I had a little word with the Macmillan nurses afterwards. I said, is that all right? Did he just know? And they, were, they said, it's, it happens more often than you'd think. We like someone close to them to know, 
so someone's keeping an eye on the, on the bigger picture mm. and said, you know, you know your stuff, you're all right, so we're completely fine with that. And I wonder because certainly during those first two years, oh, my God, every, once a week, once a fortnight, he'd go into hospital with a headache or he'd have an epileptic fit or something and... Had he known, I think he would be going into hospital thinking this is the end. This is it. At 4 a.m. thinking, is this it? Is this the end? So he never did. He was more kind of annoyed by it. Oh, this is annoying. Here we are, A and E again. He never had that bigger picture in mind. I honestly think helped. I'm not saying everyone should do that, but weird how that did help. I'm missing my lovely food and talking about cancer. I'm sorry. Uh, that's my fault for <laughs> distracting you by <laughs> what we're interviewing for. you. Oh, no. How is your lamb? It's mm, beautifully this done. Is gorgeous. Have a piece of lamb. Come here, Doug. Mm. You get a bit of fried chicken. I think you mm. get the, the bad end of the day. I mean, it's, it's like <laughs> um, fried chicken can never be the bad end of anything. No, that's absolutely true. There is a story that you said you would love to write a Marvel movie with a gay superhero as front and center, rather than just sort of some backstage back character. Hmm. Um. <laughs> pause, right? Well, it's all right. We'll, we'll mm. cut this pause. I took all of that chicken in one mouthful and that was delicious. Mm-mm. No, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's it. That's the, that's the advert. Yeah. <laughs> Splice it with my one-night stands. All of that chicken in my mouth. <laughs> Stop it. Jay, you're a bad man. I know, I'm a terrible man. Terrible man. man. I'm, 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 I'm going to sit in the corner and think about what I've possibly not done. <laughs> or was that you playing up for the cameras? That was one of those press launch things. Right? Oh, right, okay. Would you ever write a gay film? Like yeah, that? yeah, I want to write Superman, yeah, yeah. but make him exactly. so stonkingly like, hot and Tom just, of Finland. Yeah, exactly. It's like, um, I would. I would write that well, but I don't mm. think I'd give up years of my life to go work with a great big Marvel system. I think we'd just be rewriting constantly. I think that would drive me mad. But if I could draw like an Asterix book, that kind of book, that kind of cartoon. It seems to me that you're, uh, that you're obviously ambitious, but your ambition is stopped by the thought of having to deal with hassle. Yeah, that's true. Yes. You got to a point where... My mum said that once. You had a very simple life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Work with the people you mm. want to work with in the way that you want to work. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I don't like the meetings, particularly. I don't like the, the pitching. I don't like... Um, that's probably one of the things that stopped me um, drawing an Asterix-type book is, is the fact that I have to step foot into a world of publishing that I just don't know at all and suddenly be with strangers, not knowing the rules. But sometimes that's good for you as well. I'm the architect of my own downfall here... I tell my agent to turn down a lot of approaches. I'm just interested in generating stuff myself, really. It's like you do get an offer every day to come and work in Louisiana and write, adapt this novel for us. It's like most of them never happen. No, that's true. I've got a very good instinct for stuff that doesn't, that'll never happen. I turned down George Lucas's Star Wars series many years ago, about, about over 10 and look, years ago. It didn't ago. really work out anyway. Well, no. Is that George who? Is that, he, he made, he, got, he wrote an entire television series of like 50 episodes just sitting on a shelf. Never got made. There are Star Wars television series coming out now. They're not that one. That was and George Lucas wrote them himself or with a team. With a team. And do you know what? I kind of knew. I had. I thought that's not going to get made. Weird. Do you uh, <laughs> do you still hold to yes dessert? We have the yes. dog sheet. So um, for the oh. for the tape, let it be recorded that there is a tiramisu. Hooray! There is figs with honey and vanilla ice cream. There's an affogato. Anyway. What do you like? Um, what are these things? Um, what's an affogato? That is vanilla ice cream with a, an espresso. Oh, okay, that's too straightforward. I should have something I'd never know. What's a caprese? A caprese? It's a chocolate cake made. Oh. Uh, it's quite intense, rich, with mascarpone. You use the word intense? I'm going there. That's it's lovely. We've got to have an intense. And one. and because we have to, I'll have the tiramisu. The classic tiramisu. Yes. Yeah. Oh. And the a, other question I've always wanted to ask you, because you vanished into a puff of smoke, 
On MasterChef, who brings in the third plate? Who does that? Did they go back and get it? Or yes. does a minion come scuttling in? Do you know, there are, so many, there are a bunch of questions that are asked for MasterChef. <laughs> that is one of them. Uh, who brings in the third plate? Yes. It's the same person who brings in the other two. Right. They have a little shelf just outside the door oh. where they place the one down and then they bring them through. Oh, they've done that. The other one I'm often asked is, um, they say... Why doesn't anybody hold open the door for them? And I think you will understand the answer. My reply is, it's television, nobody dies. It would be so much Great. less entertaining. Has anyone ever dropped it? I've never seen a drop. I've never seen a drop. No, mm. I love those shows. Yeah. I literally... I'm a fool for them. For someone who doesn't really cook. Okay. Catelyn Moran and I swap each other great puns that we've heard. And the best pun in history was on MasterChef, not the celebrity one, the normal MasterChef. Yeah. You know, they go and cook in a field. And out they went to cook for the Bronte Society. <laughs> Like you do, all in, oh, full, yeah. in full costume, can you imagine? All of them dressed up like Grace Poole. And um, so in a tent, and they did pork chops, and they were enormous pork chops, and Greg, in a fine moment of television, Greg Wallace picked up this enormous pork chop and said, where'd you get this from? A brontosaurus. <laughs> now, a truly great pun can only ever be said once. Yeah. I think, and that... It's got to be in context. Truly great, a brontosaurus. <laughs> wow. Wow. Now, that's oh, a that's tiramisu. Like a, that's like a rough hume tiramisu. Well, that, what's like, beautiful about that is you can tell that there is a bigger bowl downstairs yes, and this yes. is a corner from it. <laughs> and I like that. Any coffee, gentlemen? Um, I'd love a coffee. Can oh, I just have an espresso? Thank you. That'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, same. same for me. That, and you've got a, a, a lot I didn't think of a bowl. I thought of like a cliff. That looks like someone's chiselled at a cliff. The, the tiramisu cliffs of Tuscany. A, a cliff, yes. <laughs> <laughs> just, just beneath Siena. <laughs> um... Try some of that. <laughs> Large menu cake. So, Russell T. Davis, thank you very much. Thank you. For letting me take you out to lunch. I loved it. Marvellous. What does the T stand for? There is nothing there. There's another Russell Davis on Radio 4, so I invented it. And the day after I invented it and it was transmitted, someone said to me, Oh, like James T. Kirk. I was like, Oh, <laughs> no. So, Russell Tiberius Davis. Thank you. It's been a joy. Thank you. Tiberius, good knowledge. Good knowledge. Yeah, oh, yeah. come on! That lunch was everything I was hoping it would be. And if you want more, you can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. We would really appreciate it if, having consumed them, you were then to review them and give them five stars and tell all your friends about them. And please do subscribe. Then you'll get every single episode as it drops. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The assistant producer was Jemima Rathbone. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's the brilliant songwriter, performer, Leanne Le Havis. I got a call shortly before the show Yeah. from my, my manager at the time saying, don't mean to alarm you. Stevie Wonder's coming to the show. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>